This is a Federal News Network podcast. Most people think of Santa Claus when they think of NORAD, but NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, in reality has a crucial and enduring mission, and one that is ever-evolving as threats evolve. Now NORAD is embarking on a modernizing effort aimed at better situational awareness and deterrence. For details, we turn to the commander of NORAD and of the U.S. Northern Command, Air Force General Glenn Van Herc. General Van Herc, good to have you on. Tom, it's an honor to talk with you today, and appreciate you having me on to talk about really important issues, and that's defense of North America and our homelands. And let's begin just between the differentiation of NORAD and the U.S. Northern Command. I know you've probably explained this a million times, but just uh, for those of us listening in, if you would reiterate that. Absolutely. So I'm the 26th commander of NORAD. Uh, NORAD's been around since 1958. And in that commander of NORAD hat, I work for the chief of the defense staff there in Canada, and I also work for the secretary of defense, primarily in the role of airspace control and maritime warning to North America. I like to say that the commands are separate. On the NORTHCOM side, I do work for the secretary of defense you know, to the president of the United States. But I also think that the commands are inseparable in the defense of our homelands and the defense of critical infrastructure. And I think that Canada and the U.S. are going to be tied together, whether it be undersea to air to space to cyberspace domains in the defense of North America and our homelands. And so I think the commands are inseparable. And there is a joint statement on NORAD modernization, and the joint is between Canada and the United States. So just outline how Canada and the United States fit together in the NORAD context. Well, as a binational command with the two countries, we're responsible for the defense of North America, not defense of U.S. and Canada. It's the defense of North America. And so as a uh, agreement in the past, historically, the U.S. has funded 60 percent or so of NORAD and Canada 40 percent. Certainly Canada has done their part maintaining the North Warning System. But as we go forward with the threats that have evolved today and the changes and challenges that are presented to North America, it's going to be crucial that we work together, both Canada and the U.S., to modernize and move forward in the defense across all domains of North America. And let's get to that modernizing effort and the joint look that the two nations have at this. I mean, what are some of the newer threats emerging that NORAD, or I guess really the defense establishment, perceives to be coming to North America? Well, as a commander of NORAD, I see multiple threats, simultaneous challenges across every domain from below the surface of the sea to space and cyberspace. I think it's really important to point out that the threats that we see today, and you've seen some of them here in the news recently, expand across every domain. Recently, we've seen a lot of activity with hypersonic glide vehicles and maneuvering capabilities. Uh, You've seen that from China. I'd also point out that Russia has already fielded uh, hypersonic capabilities with their avant-garde. North Korea, they claim to be testing uh, maneuvering and hypersonics. Uh, The intel community hasn't confirmed that, but we'll see where that goes, and I expect to see others. But it's much more than hypersonics. Subsea threats, uh, you know, vessels such as submarines, as Russia continues to evolve their capabilities, they're going to present a significant challenge in the undersea domain, just as China will about the next decade or so, including advanced cruise missiles, not only from those submarines, but from surface-based sea vessels, as well as bombers. I would also point out that Uh, Russia has already modernized their uh, nuclear force. Uh, China is in the uh, great expansion of their nuclear force. Rogue nations continue to seek capabilities to hold our homelands at risk as well. And so the, the challenges are significant, and it's time that we take a look closely 
at our ability to counter those, not only uh, from a defensive standpoint, but really from a deterrence standpoint and specifically integrated deterrence across all of our governments, utilizing every lever of influence that we have to, first of all, not even get in a crisis or conflict to stay out of that, Tom. Sure. So the modernization then, what do you envision that needs modernizing? For example, the ability to detect some of these things, and as you mentioned, the ability to counter them. So it's a pretty broad range of capabilities, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I would tell you, is it's really hard to deter and certainly defeat something that you can't detect. And so really, I have four priorities. The first one would be domain awareness. What that means is sensors capable of detecting threats, not only in a defensive posture or in a crisis, but day-to-day so that we give our nation's senior leaders more decision space. And so domain awareness, I think, starts with uh, space-based capabilities. It also starts with terrestrial-based capabilities, such as over-the-horizon radars that give us a longer range to see potential threats, such as those cruise missiles that I talked about or potential bombers, but it also extends to capabilities for undersea warfare, such as the integrated undersea surveillance system, which Canada is a part of with the United States to give us more domain awareness, not only in the Atlantic, but as China evolves and other nations in the Pacific. But something that a lot of folks don't think about is domain awareness in the cyber domain to understand where those threats are that may be threats to our key critical infrastructure, that could have significant impacts on force projection capability, threat warning, as well as attack assessment, those kinds of things. Got it. We're speaking with Air Force General Glenn Van Herc. He's commander of NORAD and of the U.S. Northern Command. And so it's probably early to say then what specific technological needs you might have. You just realize that these are the domains that there's some new capabilities needed. Is that a fair way to put it? Yes, I would say that we do have an idea of some of the technological types of things. I mentioned over-the-horizon radar. It's a proven technology today. It's not something that you have to develop. It's a matter of fielding in a lot of cases and figuring out where you're going to put them, as well as, uh, you know, integrating them into current capabilities. When you talk about domain awareness, I mentioned I have four priorities. Domain awareness is the first. And oftentimes, it's not about new capabilities, Tom. It's actually about taking capabilities that exist today that may exist in stovepipes where the information is not shared. And so, for example, the North Warning System is still a usable uh, system, but oftentimes that data is not shared in a timely manner for our senior leaders to make decisions. And so taking that data and information and sharing it into a cloud-based architecture where you can then apply artificial intelligence and machine learning to process that data where today sometimes it takes hours, if not days, to process data to give our leaders decision criteria or decision material to make decisions on. We want to do that faster to get further left. As I said, I don't want to end up defeating cruise missiles over Ottawa or uh, Washington, D.C. I actually want to give our senior leaders deterrence options ahead of that so they can de-escalate every day uh, if we need to and certainly create deterrence. I hope that makes sense. And that, to me, the third priority is decision superiority, and that's about taking that information, uh, what I call information dominance, and distributing it to the right senior leader to allow them to make decisions, and that's key. And the final thing, Tom, I would tell you, no problem anymore is a regional problem or a single domain problem. They're all global and all domain. And so my defense plan for North America doesn't start in North America. It starts forward with allies and partners. It starts forward with my fellow combatant commanders in CJOC being able to create day-to-day deterrence options 
and de-escalation options, and if required, defeat. But not defeat in North America, defeat forward, and that's key, and you have to have that data and information to do that. And I imagine it also maybe starts with other U.S. components, even Homeland Security and the intelligence community, because they also have a kind of global view for their own purposes. Yeah, Tom, I agree with that. And that's why I say integrated deterrence is so important and uh, layered defense is so important. And those are not Defense Department only. They're across all levers of influence where we have to share data and information to be able to react sooner and give that decision space to our senior leaders. And as you build in capabilities to these four major priorities that you outlined, do you also see a human capital staffing talent issue that would have to be brought along also? Well, I'm not sure I would say a human capital staffing talent issue. What I would say is it's digital transformation. It's changing our culture, and that's what we're doing here at NORAD and United States Northern Command is evolving to a digital culture where the value of data and information and sharing that data and information is recognized by everybody, uh, and we share it much sooner, and we utilize it for our benefit. I would say the key is it actually frees up human capital to focus uh, elsewhere, and that's more efficient and effective in our operations overall. Now, I would like to say that we're not allowing machines to make decisions. Humans are still making those decisions, but things happen faster. Analysts can apply their talents somewhere else to help us get to where we need to go uh, much sooner. And with a vision of a modernized NORAD, then, do you translate this into, say, a POM, a program objective memorandum, And then how does that get translated into spending priorities in years ahead? So that's a great question. So we have provided, uh, NORAD has provided, what we think those uh, capabilities are, where those gaps and seams are, where we need capabilities to fill them. Very encouraged by the prime minister and the president, their talk, talk about NORAD modernization in their statement. The next step in my mind is for the Secretary of Defense and the uh, Minister of National Defense to sit down and come up with a framework that moves both Canada and the United States forward within our departments on how we would talk about you know, fielding of these capabilities, the agreements for who's going to pay for what, what capabilities. Uh, that, in my mind, is the next step, Tom. And is there a generalized sense of how long this might take? Well, as far as how long, I think we can field uh, some of these capabilities in you know short years. Others may take five or six years, but I believe you know within a year to five or six years, many of the requirements and capabilities uh, we can field. Now, I would tell you, with regards to the use of data and information, through our experiments here called Global Information Dominance Experiments, uh, we've demonstrated the capability to utilize artificial intelligence and machine learning today. That exists right now. So the challenge becomes actually taking that data and information and sharing it with the users and those that need that information to make key decisions and then distributing that data so our senior leaders have it in a timely manner to make decisions. And I guess maybe on the philosophical level, if you convert to a more digital and artificial intelligence-driven, data-driven organization, then in that way, the process of modernizing becomes almost continuous as opposed to the 50s and 60s when you put in big hardware-based systems and they sat there and did their thing for 20 or 5 or 30 years. Yeah, Tom, I couldn't agree with you more. We're organized, what I would say, for an industrial age to field, you know, capabilities such as airplanes, tanks, 
ships, those kinds of things. As you transition to a digital environment, the processes and the culture and the way we approach training and testing will have to change as well. And I'll give you an example. So we're set up on a FIDEP, a fiscal year defense plan, that's a five-year spending plan with annual budgets. But we're able to update software and capabilities in a two-week time cycle, 14 days. The process is not set up to do that. So we have to think about how do we take advantage of a new environment where the capability to update and move uh, quickly on fielding of capabilities uh, exist within days and weeks and not years uh, time frame. So you need some managerial and fiduciary agility to keep up with the technical agility. Yeah, I agree with that. We have to look at policies and laws in place that will challenge our ability to stay relevant for fielding of capabilities in a timely manner. Uh, And the utilization of money uh, within an annual budget cycle, where today sometimes money can't cross uh, between different types of money designated for fielding of different types of capabilities, when you field software-based capabilities, we need to go assess that and ensure that our policies and laws don't hinder us in the fielding of those capabilities. All right. Anything else we need to know about this initiative? Well, we've been very aggressive talking about the use of data and the use of information. Uh, And we've brought in key allies and partners such as Canada to that discussion. I think uh, he or she in the future with the right data and the right information at the right time, whether it be in day-to-day competition, in crisis, or in conflict, uh, will win. And it gives our nation's senior leaders, both Canada and the U.S., decision space to keep us out of crisis and conflict. And I think that's where we're focused. But with that said, we do have to figure out what we must defend from a policy standpoint. Uh, There are some key things that are crucial to us that we must defend and uh, field those capabilities as well as creating the decision space that I alluded to. But it sounds like if you have a modernized NORAD and the enemies know what its capabilities are, that itself is kind of a deterrent to keep things over there and not coming over here. That's exactly right. And that's the foundation of integrated deterrence. And what's crucial behind deterrence, whether it be you know, strategic deterrence, integrated deterrence, is the messaging that goes with that. And messaging can be the demonstration of resiliency, resiliency not only in our defense departments, but across our nation with our key critical infrastructure, our readiness, our capability, our ability to respond in times of crisis. We're doing that right now with regards to COVID. We're doing that right now in the U.S. with Allies Welcome, and Canada has been a part of that as well. All of those, in my mind, contribute to deterrence because they show our capability to adapt. They show our readiness and our responsiveness as well. And will you still always track Santa on Christmas Eve? Absolutely. The plan is to continue tracking Santa as we move forward. That's a no-fail mission for NORAD, and we look forward to continuing to do that each and every year. Air Force General Glenn Van Herc is commander of NORAD and of U.S. Northern Command. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the opportunity. We'll post this interview along with a link to that statement with Canada at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a 
community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today.